WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to wrfi.org slash donate. This is WRFI Community Radio News, bringing you the news by and for the people of Ithaca and Watkins Glen. It's Friday, June 11th, 2021. I'm Jimmy Jordan. Virtually all COVID restrictions will soon be lifted. That's according to an announcement Governor Cuomo made on Monday this week. We have a COVID update interview with Tompkins County Public Health Director Frank Krupa coming up in the show. After that, we hear from investigative reporter Tim Schwab, one of the winners of the 13th annual Izzy Awards. Schwab's We hear Schwab's acceptance speech where he speaks about his reporting exploring the opaque operations of the Gates Foundation and its influence in the field of global health. But first, the inaugural America Talks event begins tomorrow and runs through Sunday as a part of an effort to heal social and political divisions that have driven a wedge between people with different viewpoints. This story comes to us from Public News Service. Former WRFI News Director Michaela Sabat has more. Thousands of Americans will take part in the mass video chat event, which marks the start of the fourth annual National Week of Conversation. Cheryl Hughes is a co-organizer of the event and a nonprofit consultant from Greenville, Ohio. She is a self-described liberal and says it's important to reach across the aisle. I have actually lost friends because of positions that they hold. I just have decided I need to become a better listener. The National Week of Conversation is designed to counteract the kind of vitriol often found on social media and introduce people to folks with differing views. To be matched with a conversation partner for the event this weekend, sign up at americatalks.us. The site also lists dozens of online forums on the schedule for next week. Organizers are asking people to choose courage over contempt and reject the hostility that leads to political gridlock and hampers efforts to tackle the big issues. Ron McFarland is a retired teacher from Iowa who describes himself as a fiscal conservative and moderate Republican. He says he's taken heat for his views. There's so much hurt, so much polarization and divide in the the country. But for me, it's go America. The National Week of Conversation promotes what organizers call bridging norms. They advise everyone to listen with curiosity, speak from their own experience, and connect with respect. For New York News Connection, I'm Michaela Savitt. To learn more or participate in America Talks, you can go to americatalks.us. Tompkins County is reporting no new cases of the coronavirus and a total of 12 active cases. There have been no new cases for the past two days. Schuyler County is reporting no new cases of the virus and a total of 10 active cases of COVID. And here's the weather forecast courtesy of the National Weather Service. Tonight, chance of showers, low near 60. Saturday, slight chance of showers, but otherwise, partly sunny skies, high near 80. Saturday night, chance of showers remains, low near 60. Looking forward to Sunday, showers and thunderstorms likely throughout the day, 
high near 80. tuned in to WRFI Community Radio. You're listening to WRFI Community Radio News. So, where are we with the pandemic right now? It seems good, like we're reaching a light at the end of a tunnel, as if that comparison isn't used enough. We hear COVID, we hear a COVID update interview with Tompkins County Public Health Director Frank Krupa now. We speak to him about the potential of a fall or winter surge the behavior vaccinated and unvaccinated Tompkins County residents can resume. And so without further delay, here is that conversation. Frank Krupa, thanks for speaking with me today. Frank Krupa, you are the Tompkins County Public Health Director. Uh, We're going to be continuing a conversation that you started at the Tompkins County COVID-19 update on June 3rd. Since then, Governor Cuomo has made a sweeping announcement. On Monday this week, he said that once New York State reaches a 70% vaccination rate among adults, uh, he is going to lift just about all of the COVID-19 restrictions in most settings. Not all, but many. New York State is just on the cusp of that 70% mark, according to the New York State COVID-19 vaccine tracker. Tompkins County is already past that 70% mark. We're at 74.2%. So, First question, what are we about to see change? What's Cuomo mean when he says, quote, virtually all restrictions will soon be lifted? Yeah, I think what we're going to see is uh, all of the gathering requirements go away, um, limitations on density in a lot of different places. I think more broader opening of uh, athletic facilities that, you know, that might have saunas or other things that have been closed. I think it's really just going to be getting back to almost pre-pandemic situations uh, for everyone that's vaccinated. Um, unvaccinated folks, I think we're still going to you know, be uh, be required to wear masks and, and, and keep their distance. But I think generally speaking, we'll be able to get back to back to normal. Um, you did mention some settings where it's, it's not going to completely change. Schools will be a piece of that. Um, healthcare uh, settings, obviously, there's some high-risk folks there, nursing homes. Um, but other than that, I think broadly we're going to be uh, we're going to be close to back where we were pre-pandemic. One of the statewide changes that Cuomo announced on Monday was that most settings won't have to submit information for contact tracing. Uh, does that concern you at all, or does it make sense? Well, I mean, the good news is our case numbers are very, very low, uh, and so we're we're not having to do a lot of contact tracing. So that's the good news. And and a lot with so many people being vaccinated, 
those folks don't need to be contact traced. We don't place them in quarantine. So really the scope of individuals that we need to, we need to contact trace is much, much smaller. And really the, the inconvenience and, you know, just the, the extra step of, of having to try to capture everyone that comes into every facility, I don't think the benefit outweighs, you know, the, the effort that that would take. And, and we'll, we'll still do contact tracing. Our experience has been people now understand what that means. So when we talk to them, they can give us a pretty good idea of where they've been and who they've been in contact with. But in most settings um, where people were collecting names, those wouldn't be close contacts that we wouldn't be able to identify anyway. So we're not we're not super worried about that. And I think it, it does make sense at this point as we, we start to reopen more fully. Something said in that June 3rd town hall that really struck me, Amy Hendricks, the deputy county administrator, she said, I'm paraphrasing slightly, This opening up feels a little like it did when we were closing down because there are so many uncertainties. What are those uncertainties, the questions you're looking to have answered around this phase of opening up? I think most of it is we just, we don't know exactly what the governor's thinking. You know, he makes the the statements at his press conference, but we don't really know the details until guidance is either rescinded or updated. And so, you know, while we think we understand, you know, broadly what he means and we can make some assumptions, until we know for certain, um, you know, we can't really say exactly what it's going to look like. And, and I think generally speaking, one thing that, you know, we're all wanting to prepare for is that I do think our disease numbers are going to stay very, very low this summer. Uh, that's good. Uh, but the thing we need to be prepared for is we are likely to see more cases in the fall. It's just the natural evolution of how these diseases cycle. But that's okay because we'll have vaccinated people and there won't be a lot of spread. And if people do actually become positive, hopefully if they're vaccinated, their experience will be of mild symptoms or perhaps no symptoms at all. So we will be better protected. So we just want to prepare folks as we reopen. Um, that's really great news. But as we roll you know, through the summer and into the fall, yeah, we do expect we might see some additional cases at that point, and, and we'll be monitoring it and, and react and communicate with our community about what we might need to do, if anything, uh, if and when that happens. That point you just brought up about seasonal surges with COVID, now that, that refers to a few questions that I have here, but there's something I want to ask you first. One of the big trends in COVID is announcements like the one that Governor Cuomo made the other day. Uh, it reaches everyone at the same time. So what you were saying makes me think this announcement reached you on Monday, just like it did me in the news. Yes. Yeah, that, that is correct. We, we don't really get any forewarning. We're monitoring the governor's press conferences and uh, react to uh, what he says there and then try to help interpret for our community. Mm-hmm. Was there any kind of pivot that you had to make as soon as you heard the news from that press conference? No, I think we were all prepared that, you know, this is the path we're on is moving towards reopening. We didn't know exactly when it would happen or what the threshold would be to achieve that. But generally speaking, we've been gradually reopening. And because our disease numbers are so low and our vaccination rates are so high, we need to be moving towards being fully reopened. And uh, it was just a matter of time. And so when we heard it from the governor, uh, we just uh, moved forward from there. So going back to that subject I was trying to put a pin in earlier, seasonal surge. So 
variants. Variants always come up in what I read and hear about seasonal surges. You know, the chance of there being a more serious surge is tied to the variants that the vaccines we have aren't as effective against. Now, we we aren't seeing, you know, those dangerous variants like the Delta and South African variants in Tompkins County. So before we start talking about those potentialities, can you tell me what variants we see in Tompkins County? Sure. Um, we're extremely fortunate to have Cornell and Geiger Health Systems here uh, partnering to do genomic sequencing on our positive cases. So we do have some idea about what we've been seeing in our community. Predominantly now, our positive cases are our variants. For the first third quarter of the year, um, it was a mixture of the B117, uh, which was uh, more commonly known as the UK variant, and then the B1256, which was the New York City variant. They were the, the predominant variants we were seeing um, over the last two or three months. That's really consolidated into almost all of our positive cases have been the B117. Um, so we are now in a variant pool of, uh, of cases here in our community. The good news is the vaccine does appear to work with the B117 variant, and that's the good news. Uh, but to the point, the reason we need everybody to get vaccinated, it's, it's not just about protecting the individual um, from potentially getting ill. Uh, it's really about stopping transmission because every time that transmission occurs, it gives the virus another opportunity to mutate. And what we don't want to have happen is a mutation occur that, one, the, va the vaccine is not effective against, um, two, is more virulent, and, and three, uh, could cause more uh, morbidity and mortality in our community. Um, so that's really why everyone needs to get vaccinated. It's not just about us as individuals. It's about protecting us as a community. Uh, and so because we've done really well here in Tompkins, hopefully uh, the rest of the state and country will continue on their path towards getting more people vaccinated, it will limit those opportunities for mutations to occur. Nobody has a crystal ball and can tell you for certain if you do these three things, then you will not have any variants. Um, but what we do know is the steps that we're taking are all designed to help prevent those mutations from occurring. And if we continue you know, doing that work, hopefully uh, we'll get to a place where we have vaccines that are effective against the variants that are in our uh, disease profile in our community. You know, how are we better prepared now for something like a seasonal surge in COVID? Like what would happen in that situation? And, you know, what are you ready to do? Sure. So I, I, we, we've, we've been preparing for pandemics, certainly at the health department for near 20 years now. Uh, and so, you know, for us, we knew much of what we needed to do. But for our broader community, for the broader county government, um, we really had to bring them, them up to speed. And thankfully, in Tompkins County, that went really well. And really what we're prepared for is, you know, whatever comes, right? We, we understand how to do disease surveillance. Uh, we know how to control transmission through quarantine and isolation. We know how to do uh, mass testing. We know how to do mass vaccination. Uh, so any or all of those components of this, if we needed to stand up again, I think our community is, is poised and, and uh, certainly our county government is ready and prepared to, to do whatever is necessary. All right, Frank Krupa, my last question for you. Where have you found relief? 
I think for me, uh, there's two places. One is with my team. Um, the folks here at the health department and, and the broader county response have been amazing to work with. And just looking at the, the dedication that they have to our community, it really gives you gives you energy. And then professionally, as a public health person, the way our community responded was nothing short of amazing. We, we told people what we thought, what we knew, and what we uh, needed them to do, and they responded. Um, I, you know, I watch the news and I see in other parts of the country and world where it's really an uphill battle for public health officials to get their communities to, to respond. But that wasn't the case here. And, and that really energized me, I think, our entire team to know that our community cared and, and wanted to do what was necessary to protect each other. Uh, and that really was uh, that's really what's driven me through all of this. Great to hear. Thank you for just, you know, getting on the phone, making some time and always keeping up this outreach. Sure. Sounds good. Just let us know when we can help. This is WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Jimmy Jordan. That was Tompkins County Public Health Director Frank Krupa speaking about this new phase in the COVID-19 pandemic opening up. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around because we'll bring you a speech, a speech from Tim Schwab, one of the recipients of the 13th annual Izzy Award. He'll be speaking with us about the often unscrutinized Gates Foundation, the subject of his recent reporting in The Nation. Stay with us. program, we heard from Tompkins County Public Health Director Frank Krupa, one of the leading voices working to keep our community safe throughout the pandemic. And if you've been listening to the national news, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation are often portrayed to be something like that on a global scale. Tim Schwab's reporting paints a picture that is not so singularly benevolent. Schwab is a recipient of the 13th annual Izzy Award, and it's his reporting on the opaque operations of the Gates Foundation that made him stick out to the judges. We're about to hear his acceptance speech, where he talks about the Gates Foundation's influence in our society and in the field of global health. This first voice you're going to hear is Bob McChesney, 
McChesney, professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Illinois. He introduced Schwab at April's Izzy Award ceremony. Journalism is uh, often called the first draft of history. And um, that's especially true for investigative journalism. There's a particular problem that arises or issue that arises when a historian or a journalist enters an area that hasn't been well-researched before. They're the first person into the forest. They're the first person to really dive into something. Because there's an added responsibility to that journalist or to that scholar. Because if they make a mistake, if they're lazy, if they screw up, if they go off in the wrong direction, they can throw off everyone that follows them for a decade or two decades. They could screw it all up. On the other hand, if they get it right, if they go in and really identify what's going on, what the key issues are, what the factors are, they get the evidence. They don't settle for weak responses or poor analysis. Then they can open a door for every other scholar, every other journalist to walk through it, to carry the work forward. And I think that's the way to understand what Tim Schwab has done with his work on Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. He has opened our door, and that's the highest compliment I can give a journalist for not just looking at the Gates Foundation, not just looking at Bill Gates, but for all sorts of work that go after this underexplored issue or unexplored issue of the role of billionaires, their foundations, their philanthropy, and how power is exercised in our society. And Bill Gates, more than anyone, exemplifies that. So it's appropriate that that uh, is the topic in the work that Tim has done. Now, I think probably you're all well familiar with Bill Gates. You should be. He's treated like a deity in our mainstream media, uh, corporate and public, NPR, PBS. And I think what Tim has done with this work is never again can an honest journalist report on Gates or his foundation without going through Tim's work and dealing with it. They can't ignore it anymore. He's laid down the model and approach also journalists can use when they look at any other billionaire, any other philanthropy and their role in public life. This is how you do it. This is how you strip aside the overwhelming public relations that surrounds these people, the hot air, and gets to the truth of their power and how they exercise it in their self-interest. Thank you, Tim. And now may I introduce Tim Schwab. Thanks so much for that introduction, Professor McChesney. Really generous of you. And I like the way you framed this as the beginning, not the end, that the doors open. You know, I covered Gates three stories for the nation, but there's certainly a lot more ground to cover. So I conceived and pitched um, this project in 2018. And um, it's, it's very much the case that there hasn't been much critical reporting on the Gates Foundation really in the last decade, and even before that. It's not that there isn't a lot of journalism about the Gates Foundation. There is this, we're just swimming in, in news stories about the Gates Foundation, but it's, it tends to be very descriptive. It's telling us how much money the Gates Foundation is giving. It's telling us about Bill and Melinda's big innovative ideas for changing the world, but there's not much accountability reporting that really looks back on what they've done and what the effects of their work is. And certainly within that, there's even less investigative reporting. I mean, for me, when I approached this project, it just was such an obvious goldmine of a story, not just because journalists haven't covered it, but because the Gates Foundation is one of the most powerful, least scrutinized actors in, in global politics. I mean, we've seen this in the last year. Bill Gates just wrote a best-selling book on climate change, and now he's the climate change guy in the news media. 
over the last year, mostly we know Bill Gates as uh, a self-appointed leader on the COVID response. But for decades before that, the Gates Foundation has been shaping how we educate children in the United States, how we grow food in Africa, and how we administer global health, public health around the world. So they really do have a, a really outstanding um, amount of, of political influence. But the story was also a gold mine because of the public records that were available. So one of the few ways that Congress or the IRS really puts a transparency requirement on private foundations like the Gates Foundation is they have to make publicly available their annual tax filings. And in those tax filings, you can start to follow the money. You can't see everything, but you can see all the charitable grants that the Gates Foundation has made. So if you're looking at two decades of operations, um, that's thousands of pages of tax filings and tens of thousands of charitable grants that you can look through. And that really became the core of the investigative reporting I did for the nation. The first story I wrote, it looked at the, the $2 billion in charitable donations that the Gates Foundation has given to private companies. And this includes you know, large multinational pharmaceutical companies. That seems odd, hopefully that sounds odd, that uh, a, a charity would be making donations to a private company, but it's not odd in, in the view of Bill Gates, who really believes that the private companies and commerce and capitalism drive social change. You know, there's even interviews where he describes his work at Microsoft ushering in the computer revolution as a humanitarian feat, kind of on par with, with all of the good deeds he's done at the Gates Foundation. Um, so it's no surprise that when he asserted himself in the pandemic response, his idea was to work with and through Big Pharma to deliver solutions to the, the COVID pandemic, which we've seen play out in some, some striking uh, ways. Another thing that I found looking through you know, Gates' charitable donations is how much money he's giving to his critics or his would-be critics. Um, and this includes a quarter billion dollars to journalism, to newsrooms. It also includes $8 billion to universities, uh, where some researchers have coined the term the bill chill, which is a chilling effect um, that a reluctance to bite the hand that feeds them. Bill Gates gives so much money. So, so all of this suggests that, that Gates has some ability to neutralize his critics, and that, to be sure, that must be part of the reason why we don't have a richer critical discourse around the Gates Foundation. But that's not to say that there aren't critics. And as I start to do my reporting, you realize how many critics they are. They're really legion. And this is from prestigious universities, research institutes, medical doctors, civil society activists. There really are a lot of critical voices around the Gates Foundation. We just don't hear them that often in the news media. And, and I'll also say that you know, readers are really starving for critical perspectives on the Gates Foundation because we're just swimming or drowning in the good news about the Gates Foundation. But you know, where's the critical reporting? You know, a quirk of, of my series is that the first story appeared in the middle of March, uh, right as really the kind of COVID pandemic was taking hold, right as Bill Gates suddenly is constantly in the news as a talking head, sort of describing the path forward to resolving the pandemic. And he really got a hero's welcome in the news media as somebody who's stepping in where our political leaders had failed, somebody who's putting, marshalling his resources to solve the pandemic. I mean, to me, it seemed like a really odd framing because if you know Bill Gates' histories, you know, he's one of history's most storied monopolists. And it seems odd that you would want somebody like him with, with his pedigree 
to be you know, anywhere near a decision-making process around how we're gonna develop and distribute a COVID vaccine, which is arguably one of the most potent monopoly markets we've ever seen. It's a vaccine that everybody on earth needs one or maybe two doses of. Why would Bill Gates be close to the decision-making table on that? And that's another story I wrote for The Nation late last summer, profiling Gates' assertion of power in the pandemic. I mean, he's done this through you know, the Gates Foundation and several organizations that Gates funds really exercises control over the World Health Organization's COVID response. And the WHO, of course, is responsible how people in low and middle income countries, the developing world, how they get or how they don't get access to vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. So, you know, Gates' role in the pandemic, it's its really been striking, but it's also been somewhat predictable in that he's used his, his money, his influence, his celebrity, his bully pulpit, his place in the media to really kind of defend the prevailing market mechanisms guiding big pharma. Right now, even I think mainstream news is looking at, at the way that the COVID vaccine is being rolled out and the pharmaceutical control over these markets and not making it freely available for any capable manufacturer to produce, you know, that's being even in the mainstream media seen as an obstacle to ramping up vaccine production. And you're, you're sort of seeing a reappraisal of big, big pharma as not necessarily a solution, but uh, an obstacle to uh, solving COVID. But certainly this is all presiding over a really nightmarish vaccine apartheid where the, the rich, the wealthy have uh, first access to these vaccines Well, the poor don't, and that's playing out in really sad ways around the world. And at a certain point as a journalist and maybe as a reader, you step back and you want there to be some karmic justice. You want there to be some accounting. If Bill Gates is gonna sit here and receive all this adulation about all the hard work he's done in the pandemic, kind of a hero narrative surrounding his work and his leadership, isn't a defining characteristic of leadership to also take responsibility when things go bad, when there's failures. And the answer with Bill Gates is no, there isn't a responsibility because he's not accountable. He is not an elected official. He's not a, a public official. There's no way we can use a public process to remove Bill Gates. Congress and the IRS, they have the ability that they're not using to provide checks and balances over the Gates Foundation, but it is really important for journalists to also step in and provide that role of accountability. And I couldn't agree more with what Professor McChesney said, is that this is an issue for journalists, for democracy, that is much bigger than the Gates Foundation. He has created a really clever way for billionaires to exercise political power that is totally undemocratic and unaccountable. It's a model that a next generation of tech billionaires are absolutely going to follow. So it's it's a model that we need to continue to scrutinize. And I do think that, um, I know there's a lot of students um, at Ithaca College who might be listening, and I think this is a really rich area to pursue for the next generation of journalists. I just want to say thank you to the Park Center. Uh, this, this award, it means, it means the world to me, and I'm really appreciative. Thank you. You're listening to WRFI Community Radio News. I'm Jimmy Jordan. Again, that was Tim Schwab, recipient of a 13th annual Izzy Award for his reporting on the often unscrutinized operations of the Gates Foundation. You can read his reporting in The Nation. And that will do it for our program today. If you want to hear more and get daily updates on COVID-19, you can head over to WRFI.org. 
If you value what we what you heard here today, you can support this station by going over to wrfi.org slash donate. Were you listening to this program and thought, why isn't anyone talking about affordable housing in our community? Or you wanted to hear something about harmful, harmful algal blooms? This is a community radio station. If you're interested in telling a story, reporting to serve your community, this is where you can do it. We'd love your help. Please reach out to news at ithacaradio.org. On behalf of the entire WRFI news team, thank you for listening. Be well. One, two, three. WRFI. WRFI. <laughs>